Who is going to help me come to questions about my own authenticity? Unless I'm willing to let reality correct me and correct the world I participate in, right? Yep. Then I'm living a sham. And I think what it is to be free is to refuse to live a sham life. Dr. James Madden is professor of philosophy at Benedictine College. He has taught courses in modern philosophy, metaphysics, and philosophy of religion for over 20 years. And his research has included phenomenology, philosophy of mind, analytic philosophy, and cognitive science. Listen in as we discuss his latest book entitled, Thinking About Thinking, Mind and Meaning in the Era of Techno-Nihilism. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America, one conversation at a time. From our studios in Atchison, Kansas, these are the Benedictine Dialogues. All right, Jim, welcome to the Benedictine Dialogues, Thank you, man. man. Thank you. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. We've kind of talked about this book a couple of times uh, before you even published it, talked about some of the concepts, but finally getting an opportunity to, to dive in and just really looking forward to asking you some questions and, and Appreciate diving in for our audience. So one of the first questions I want to ask, especially with a, a newly published book, is what was the, the impetus uh, behind it? What was your motivation behind uh, writing this book? Yeah, um, for me, it was sort of mid, maybe two-thirds career, um, I returned a lot of the kind of the material that I was very interested in when I was an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I went off to grad school uh, in, planning to work in European philosophy and phenomenology. Uh, for various reasons, I got into analytic philosophy and then wrote a master's thesis on Ludwig Wittgenstein and Wilfred Sellers, mm -hmm. which when you have it in the book, that makes sure. sense. And then I went on to my doctoral program, and for various reasons, it wasn't going to work out to work on that stuff. So I ended up going in a different direction into uh, early modern philosophy. And then eventually, um, I get a tenure track position here at Benedictine, mm -hmm. um, teach a lot of Aquinas. So then I, I go in that direction. I write my first book on Aquinas' philosophy of mind. And philosophy of mind was what I always wanted to do anyway. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then finally, I get to a point in my career uh, where I have the leisure to like kind of do whatever I want, mm -hmm. okay? And um, I started going back and rereading a lot of the stuff that I was into when I was an undergrad that I originally wanted to do in grad school. You know, people like Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty, mm -hmm. Wittgenstein, um, and then this book is the product of that like return to my youth nice. right, in many ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe just to kind of start off the conversation, give us a little bit of a, of a synopsis of the idea of the philosophy of mind. You yeah. know, maybe some of our audience doesn't know quite that concept, and I think it's an important concept yeah. before we dive in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the philosophy of mind obviously is the attempt to give the broadest possible account we can of what it is to have a mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. And of course, right off the bat, that raises the, like, the most important question in philosophy of mind, like what is a mind, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and the tendency, and maybe the, the most common tendency in philosophy of mind is to think of what is a, the question of what is a mind in terms of the mind-body problem, mm -hmm. okay? So we have a sense that we have mental states or we have a mental life, right, uh, that we like to characterize called a mind or a self or a soul. And the question then becomes like, what is the relationship between the mind or the self and the soul to the body? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the overriding concern there is how would those two things interact if they're not the same thing, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. there's the questions about dualism versus materialism, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, and that's, that's how philosophy of mind is played out in the mainstream of Anglo-American philosophy and even to some degree in Catholic philosophy too. All right. 
and that's well and good. Right? And and I've spent a lot of time on those kind of questions. In this book, though, I've looked at another a different kind of question in the philosophy of mind, and it less so the question of um, what is it, what kind of entity is it, mm-hmm. right? Is it is it more like a ghost or more like you know an animal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, I've asked more, just what do we mean when we say someone has a mind? Mm-hmm. Okay, in that sense of like. If you said, you know, Madden was a little odd today, he must have lost his mind, mm. okay? You're not asking whether there's like a ghost occupying this gorilla, no. right? You're asking, you're making a point about whether or not what I do makes sense, Yeah. okay? And so then for me, the question in this book is, okay, what is a mind? But I mean more in the sense of what is it to be the kind of thing that makes sense of things? Mm-hmm. Like what is it to be a sense-making being, okay? Um, and traditionally we'd say that, that it would be, what is it to be a thinker? Yes. Okay. And th- there ergo the title thinking about thinking. So, yes. Yes. so the question for this book isn't necessarily, is the mind something separate from a body though that comes up? The question is, um, what are the conditions such that we can think the way we humans think? Mm-hmm. What are those conditions? Oh, very good. And you start off in the, with kind of, a. Uh, um, opposition in a way towards the materialist perspective with mm-hmm. the picture of a brain. And right. you, you go through this a really interesting narrative of if the brain at that moment is thinking about Paris, how, how can we actually say, you know, that that's a mind or that that's participating in, in mind or whatever that might be, but maybe dive into a little bit of that of like, if someone was sure. to take, you know, answer a materialist and take a picture of a brain at an exact moment where neurons are acting in this way through this pathway, and this is what's causing thoughts, yeah. right? But you kind of, Answer that. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the the origin of that was actually like literally when my wife was uh, still teaching psychology here at the college, there was this, uh, you know, uh, caption on a a photograph in the psychology textbook that she was using that was uh, an image of an fMRI and under the caption said something, it was, you know, here's a picture of a mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's, it's it's an image of a brain and it's claimed to be a picture of a mind. Okay. And I, I remember laughing aloud at that. Saying, What's the most absurd thing I've ever heard? Because minds aren't the kinds of things you can take pictures of. Okay. So um, why not? All right. Well, um, I think what we mean when we say, when someone says, okay, I can show you a picture of someone's mind by showing a picture of their brain, is what you're saying is, is the mind and the brain are the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the way that if we said, Jim is Jennifer's husband, right? Mm-hmm. When you got to Jim, and you got to Jennifer's husband, you wouldn't count twice, you would just count once. Mm-hmm. It's just this dude in the chair here, okay? Um, and so I think when, when people say something like, well, I can take a picture of a mind by taking a picture of a brain, they're saying they're identical, they're the one and the same thing, mm-hmm. okay? If that's the case, then it should be any time you have that brain, you would have that mind, mm-hmm. right? That, that brain should be a sufficient condition, we say in philosophy, for the occurrence of that mind, mm-hmm. right? Or at least the brain in that state, okay? So as I do in the book, let's suppose you have a human being, we'll call him Cormac, okay? And uh, Cormac is thinking about Paris, right? So his mind is in a state such that it's ordered towards or looking to or contemplating the city of Paris, okay? And then say we put him on fMRI and we get an image of his brain in that state, Mm -hmm. okay? Is that a picture of the thought of Paris, Mm -hmm. okay? The case I make in the book is it clearly isn't. Right. For this reason, um, you know, Cormac could be in that neural state, 
right? His brain could be in that state, and yet the city of Paris might not exist, mm-hmm. okay? Um, he could be in that state, right? Uh, in, in like we, the example used in the book is like you could have a caveman who by some you know, odd circumstance gets a head injury such that suddenly he's in this state, neurological state, right? Just like Cormac's current state before Paris even existed, okay? I find it very hard to believe that you would say that's a thought about Paris, mm-hmm. okay? So what that tells you then is maybe in order for Cormac to think about Paris, the brain state must occur. It's a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Something else has to be present, right? Besides just the brain, mm-hmm. right? The brain might be necessary, but not sufficient, okay? And I think the missing ingredient there is we have to admit that at least among the extra ingredients, you need the city of Paris. Mm-hmm. You need something outside of Cormac mm-hmm. that is Paris, that he can be ordered towards in his thought, okay? And that's a very important move for me in the book because now what we've just said is the conditions of our thinking aren't just what's in our head or in our mind, our individual mind, but they're conditions that have to be met outside of us in a broader world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if Cormac were not in a world that's, that makes him be involved in one way or another with the city of Paris, he would not have thoughts about Paris, Mm -hmm. okay? So now we're on our way to taking thought and not make it localizable to a brain or even even an individuated soul, and we're smearing it out across the world. Yeah. It's a a participation in a larger community as well as an environment, right? Because even if it was just the introduction of the idea of Paris, let's say somebody gave him a really good story about a town named Paris where these things happened. At least the idea pre-existed prior to him actually thinking about it. And even a storyteller often has these pre-existing ideas that come into their storytelling, right? Right. So in a way, um, you you even mentioned the term of like maybe mind is, is... either a, a combination of, or leans one way or the other towards inside out versus outside in uh, influence. Right, right. Uh, it, it, a great way to think about this is, I've never been to Paris, okay? I've never been there. Uh, I think I have thoughts about Paris. Mm-hmm. Well, how is it possible for me to have thoughts about Paris, right? Maybe my friend Jared has been there, mm-hmm. right? Um, I've read books written by people who have been to Paris, right? Um, the English language has vocabulary Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that refers to Paris, all these things. So my ability to refer to Paris, to have a thought about Paris, is piggybacking on this vast community of other human beings that, that I uh, live with, mm-hmm. right? That, that, are, that I'm with, okay? And so there, it would seem then mind is coming from outside in, not inside out, mm-hmm. right? I would not have thoughts about Paris if I were not involved in that, in that community, right? And... Um, if you think of it like this, this, this reaches deep back into our history, right? So if, as I put in the book, if, you know, if Charles Martel hadn't won a battle, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there's probably no city of Paris and thereby I'm not thinking about it, nor are you, nor is anyone, or we're thinking about it very differently. And Mm -hmm. so once again, the conditions of our thought are not just in us, they're in the histories that we inherit. Yeah. Maybe we're thinking more like Carthage at that point. Yeah, exactly. The salted yeah. fields. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so from there then, it, it, it's an interesting perspective of, of mind as, especially because, you know, as atheists tend to claim, you know, things always boil down just to the neurons or whatever. Yeah. And, and maybe there's a case in regard to actions versus thoughts in, in that regard, and I'm sure we'll get into that uh, later on. But I love the idea of mind being something that you're participating in, that right. we're all participating in, in something larger than ourselves. So in that chapter, that I think it's your second chapter, you get into the idea of mind as participation. Maybe dive into that a little bit. 
Sure. So um, let's suppose I've managed to convince you that that mind is inside out, not outside in or no outside in, mm -hmm. not inside out. Right. Um, then the question then will come, OK, what are the conditions that that are necessary for us to then have a mind? Like, mm -hmm. what do we have to participate to participate in outside of ourselves such that we end up with a mind mm -hmm. or I would rather even put it now, not that I have a mind, but I participate in mind, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, the case I'm making is there, there is no mind held by the solitary individual. It's yeah. always a participation in a broader set of structures. So then we can enumerate a lot of different set kind of structures that have to be there, okay? Um, the first one I think that you know, we would want to discuss is, so going back to the example we used earlier, if you said Madden seemed to have lost his mind, today, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and then I asked you to unpack that, right? Probably where we would go in a hurry there is you would say, well, he quit making sense, mm -hmm. okay? And then as we unpack that, I think what we would end up with is he, he wasn't able to give reasons that anyone else could recognize for either what he was doing or what he was saying, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay? And so I think the, the first thing that we look for when we say someone has met the conditions for, for participating in mind is they can give reasons for what they do and what they say that other beings participating in mind can recognize as reasons, mm -hmm. okay? So step one for participation is we have to be initiated into a practice of giving and taking reasons for our sayings and, do, sayings mm -hmm. and doings, our thinkings and doings, okay? Um, and so I'll think of that, that presupposes that, that we have a language, right? That right. We, have a shared, we, have, we have a shared vocabulary in that language, okay? It also presupposes that uh, we're in touch with the world in a physical way too, mm -hmm. right? Or at least an empirical way. Um, the example I, I give in the book is, is if, if uh, Cormac can't distinguish between a city and a lake, okay? And he might, might as well mean uh, Lake Michigan by Paris rather than a city in France by Paris, then he doesn't really know how to use the word Paris and thereby doesn't know how to use, mm -hmm. doesn't know how to give reasons mm -hmm. for what he says about Paris. Okay, now it's important because um, what counts for a city or what counts for a lake is a moving target mm -hmm. empirically, right? There's all sorts of different conditions that it would be very hard to like neatly define that in mm -hmm. a way that actually carries over our practice, okay? So that means our giving and taking of reasons is sensitive to what's going on in the world empirically, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, if I can just define cup abstractly, that's not good enough unless I could, if you tell me to find the cup, Jim, I can't go find one, yeah. right? But good luck coming up with a really tight definition of a cup, right? So this presupposes that we're in touch with the world empirically, mm -hmm. okay? It's not just a formal logic, but a material logic is the, is the fancy way to put that, yeah. okay? So we have to be in a space of reasons. Okay, another important thing that will come up here is um, in, in the, the, the psychological empirical work on this is really incredible, is we now know that, and this gets into some of the stuff with technology that I deal with in the mm -hmm. book too, that the primary condition for uh, human beings learning a language is emotional attachment with other human beings, mm -hmm. okay? Um, like literally, and literally, we learn our language at our mother's knee, yep. okay? So if language is a condition for thinking, and now emotional attachment is clearly a condition for language, so it seems like we have to participate not just in reasons giving, but also care and concern with other human beings, 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. We have to be. Yeah. And so we and and it's that care bond, right? Um, and there's evidence that shows that that care bond is necessary or at least contributes to thought throughout your whole life. Right. The mm-hmm. more one is accepted in a community, the more able they're able they're able to participate in reasons giving. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, and so uh, so I think emotional attachments can be a big part of this. Yeah. Right. Some of the, like the really fascinating stuff that I got into in the research for the book is. We, t- as human beings, tend to think of ourselves, especially American human beings, Western human beings, like we tend to think of ourselves as these radical individuals, right? Okay, we, right? And we think what makes us distinctive, what's really distinctive about human beings is that we can go on our own and we, and we don't have to conform, mm-hmm. right? And the actual empirical research would tell you nothing could be further from the truth, mm-hmm. okay? And we probably don't run the planet because we're really good individualists we actually run it because we're actually really good conformists mm, okay mm-hmm. um my, one of my favorite examples is there, it comes from a it's cited by a psychologist named von hippel and he, and he talks about a very well uh, uh confirmed experiment in behavioral psychology where if you take a human uh, child and a chimpanzee at about the same cognitive level and we all had that stage right yeah. um and you take a treat and you hide it in a box okay uh, and let's say there's holes in the top of the box and you go through a sequence of poking the holes to unlock the box. Okay. And you do that for both the chimpanzee and the human child. Do it several times. Uh, the kid, human child will, will pick up on it. Okay. Do it several times. The chimpanzee will pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Right. Now vary it so that the boxes are transparent and it's obvious where the lock is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, go through the sequence. Right. Uh, Human child will go through the sequence, even though it's obvious where the lock is. The chimpanzee will go right to that lock and unlock that thing and get yeah, the treat, okay? The point being is humans tend to conform to what they're told by authorities, mm. okay? Um, the, the phrase is, it's, it's hard to herd cats, it's not hard to herd humans, right, okay? Because <laughs> it's actually surprisingly easy to hurt us, yeah. right, as much as we don't like to think this. Well, why is that? It's because to give reasons, to do the human thing, to have a human mind, presupposes a long education that's like unprecedented in the animal kingdom, okay? We cannot do what we do without extensive cultural knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Without extensive education, right? Um, the idea that you're gonna have a 12 or 13 year childhood in among most animals is absurd, and now we drag it out to like 30 now, mm-hmm. right? Okay, our, our education. Well. That education can only work if I'm willing to, to like shut up and listen to somebody. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, al- and also many of the social practices that like distinguish us presuppose a willingness to conform. Like mm-hmm. I don't want you to have like an existential crisis at a four way stop, mm-hmm. right? We have to cooperate. Okay. So think of it then if, if you aren't in an environment where you can trust the people around you to teach you. Okay. If you're in a traumatic environment, mm-hmm. right? you will not learn the conditions of human mindedness, right? And, the, and once again, like the, the association between traumatic relationships and further down cognitive problems mm-hmm. are pretty clear, mm-hmm. okay? So here's the point, it's like once again, you have to have emotional bonding and trust for people around you if you're going to have a distinctively human mind up and running, yes. right? Okay, finally, um, it's very clear too that uh, our thinking is tied to our ability to skillfully manipulate things really with our hands, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it, even the most 
you know, gifted mathematician at some point is going to pull out the pencil and paper to have to figure it out, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a way that they can visualize and they can work with with their hands, right? Um, all of our skills, even the most abstract, begin by being taught with how to do something, mm -hmm. right? How to do something physically in the world, right? And once again, if you haven't been taught these skills, right, mm -hmm. it, at some point, you're going to have a truncated, you know, experience of mindedness. Yeah. yeah. And potentially destroy the thing you're trying to build. Exactly. Right? Because you don't know the language that it's speaking to you. Exactly. Right? Um, it reminds me of um, Hans George Gadamer's idea of fusion of horizons, yeah. right? That you have the researcher and you have the person, that's the, the student, that both of them need to have the mindedness to look up. And right. by doing so, you're actually seeing what's in front of you ever more clear. Right. But what I love about what you're saying is, especially because um, it's almost a, a really interesting way of combating relativism, mm -hmm. that based on neuroscience, psychology, evolutionary theory, so much of that is pointing towards there's something else here. We, we need yeah. the love and care of each other. We need right. participation in a community, a larger cultural expression of what we mean by mindedness. Um, that it, it points away from just the moral argument, but also just a thinking argument right. against relativism. Yeah, the, the, these, these things that we associate with, with emotional attachment, family, mm -hmm. these structures are not accidental to mindedness. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, and they play an important evolutionary role, mm -hmm. right? They're there for a reason, mm -hmm. right? Um, they're not what we've survival. been, not just survival. Yeah, or really, I, mean, I, I might put it this way, our survival is contingent on mm. these structures. Yes. These, yeah. you, know, you know what I mean? Um, so it is not just um, a late cultural choice that we have these things. Yes, right? yeah, that's awesome. Um, so the next thing I, I'd love to get into is you do this really great chapter on some of the recent findings of neuroscience mm -hmm. and the idea of free will. Maybe share some of those kind of recent findings and, sure. and what that has to say about our understanding of free sure. will. Okay, so um, now you know, if you, if you uh, look at debates about free will, a lot of them um, are like looking at some fairly interesting cutting edge neuroscience, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's some citations in the book, right? And, you know, so it is very clear that, um, like, there are um, locations, is a crass way to put it, but there are locations in the brain where our experience of free will is grounded, mm -hmm. okay? Like, there's no, there's no getting around that, okay? So it is, it, what, whatever we're doing when we feel like we're choosing freely, it is, there's something correlated to that in the brain, okay? Um, the most famous piece in this is an experiment that was done by a guy named Benjamin Liebet, okay, who was building on earlier work done by a couple of German neuroscientists, uh, Dickey and Kornhuber. Okay. And, and what the initial work discovered is if I'm asked, let's say, I forget what the, the exact thing they did is, is if I'm asked to say I'm tapping at a certain rate and you ask me to stop tapping whenever I choose, Okay, Dickey and Kornhuber discovered that there is in fact a neurophysiological event that's associated with that. Okay, um, and uh, that that was like an important. That was the first time somebody really like where they could they could see choice as anticipated in neurophysiology. Okay, Liebig comes along and he does an experiment through very complicated means. And he finds out that that neurophysiological event happens before you have a sense of having chosen. Okay, so 
the neurophysiological event occurs and then you feel like you made a decision as to when you would stop tapping. Hmm. Okay, so it looks like then the conscious aspect has nothing to do with the choice. Mm -hmm. It's all done at the level of unconscious physical processes. Okay. And a lot of people heard that and said, well, free will's done, mm -hmm. right? Because the will, if you think of the will as something that we consciously enact, right? right? That would seem to play no role in causing when I decide to stop tapping my finger, okay? Not Liebet's view, okay? Yeah. Liebet had a very subtle view about this, but the way this has been like taken up by philosophers sure. and some scientists, that was the point, okay? All right. So in the book, I don't want to, I, I, I'm not going to attempt to correct the science, mm -hmm. okay? So I just take this as, as a given, okay? So it does seem that there's a neurophysiological event that occurs before I consciously decide to stop tapping, mm -hmm. okay? And my reply to that in the book is a great big, so what? Yeah. Okay. Because I think that has nothing to do with something like a significant human action. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because um, if you ask me if I'm tapping at a certain rate, and you ask me, Jim, why did you change the rate of your tapping? Why did you stop tapping? I would have no answer for you. Mm -hmm. It is utterly random, okay? I can't give reasons for it. And if I can't give reasons for it, it's not a minded human act, think mm -hmm. that what we've done earlier, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, a lot of like what, what you see is so-called the threat to human, human ethical agency mm -hmm. by neuroscience is a non-starter because most of what these experiments are talking about aren't the kind of actions that I think are the sort of actions that we're really worried about, mm -hmm. right? They're not actions that we can give reasons for. They're not actions that matter to us. They're mm -hmm. not actions that define us, yep. right? And what do we really want out of our actions? What do we really want out of human, human freedom, right? We want actions that matter to us, mm -hmm. actions that we can give reasons for, actions that we take responsibility for, not just random choices. Benedictine College is proud to present a new six-part series, Faith and Science Creation, hosted by Dr. Matthew Ramage. How do we navigate the seemingly competitive claims of faith and science? When it comes to creation, some people have this legitimate concern if life evolved, does that mean God's not necessary? Dr. Ramage, if we no longer accept the ancient cosmology, how do we know anything's true anymore? Atheists and Christians alike tend to unite in seeing the Bible and science as mutually contradictory. But the Catholic Church actually thinks quite differently, that from the very beginning, God has been perceived in the things that were made. How do God and creatures work together what is the relationship of creation, God, the history of life, and what does knowing the created world reveal about God? I'm Dr. Matthew Ramage, full professor of theology here at Benedictine College, and this is Faith in Science. To enjoy this free series, visit media.benedictine.edu or check out the link in the show notes. And now, back to the show. When I was reading that chapter, something I was thinking about, and maybe this is a kind of a remedial question, but also, I mean, I've looked into a lot of the science of, of addiction. Yeah. 
And there is a lot of science backing the idea of neuroplasticity, right? That you, through conscious effort, can start to create new neural pathways for things like do dopamine and stuff like that. Right. That your brain functions in a way towards something higher of what you're talking about. Like there's a reason for what I'm trying to either stop yeah. or trying to accomplish. Yeah. If I'm trying to start a new habit, I need to do these things on a very consistent basis so that it almost becomes the tapping thing, right? right. So that now right. that pathway is created so that right. whatever that antecedent was, doesn't matter because the reasons are, I want to accomplish A or I want to accomplish B, right? Yeah. And you know, and I agree. Uh, an important thing in terms of the book to bring out here is, now keep in mind that early, before this chapter, I've argued that mind is out there. Yep. Right? Yep. And we shared it, okay. And so um, I, may, I try to make the case in the book that for a lot of our most important decisions we make in our lives, mm -hmm the reasons for those decisions are not fully occurrent to us mm -hmm. when they're made, that we're piggybacking on the reasons that are in our world, mm -hmm. okay? So I use the example of, of my decision to marry, okay? Um, I, I'm not sure I fully understood the reasons for that, mm -hmm. right, at that time. I do far better now, because I'm, a, I'm a, a better practitioner of the world that I live in, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm okay. Uh, but I think at the time, that decision piggybacked mu to a much higher degree on the family I was raised in, sure. the, the church I belonged to, um, you know, similar conditions for my wife, the friendships I had, right? Just the general drift of human life, all those things, right? Were doing the thinking for me, I think. Yes. Okay, right? Um, I still think that's a perfectly free decision because reasons can be given for it. But those reasons were not fully occurrent to me as an individual, if they are at all, or ever will be fully mm -hmm. occurrent to mm -hmm. me as an individual, uh, until well after the fact. I understand it better now over 20 years later, yeah. right? But at the time, I think I was surfing on the reasons in my environment, in, yeah. my, in my Lebensfeld, if yeah. that makes sense, okay? But so no, then note, then I don't care who goes first, the will or the brain event. Yeah. Right, because my understanding of the, of the event might not even happen until 20 years after the fact. Right. Yeah. Isn't that where you get kind of into the space of reasons versus the space of causes? Yes. Maybe go on a little bit to that. Yeah, so um, there's two ways we can explain somebody's activity, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is the example I, I use in the book, is like if we say uh, Smitty believes uh, that there's a multiverse because he's uh, been reading the astrophysics literature, mm -hmm. okay? Or we say Smitty believes in the, alt, the, the multiverse because he's been drinking cough syrup all morning, okay? In the one case, we're, what we're doing is we're, we're ascribing to Smitty a place in the space of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's, if we asked him, he could give an explanation for his belief in terms of evidence and that evidence's relationship to the belief, okay? Um, in the other case, we're giving an explanation of Smitty in terms of subconscious physical causation, right? There's, there's a lot of cough syrup in, in, his, in his nervous system now, okay? Uh, and no, both, in both cases, the belief could be true, okay? But the question is whether or not Smitty has a normative relation to it or a merely causal relation to it, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Um, now, and now where that crosses over, it becomes very difficult, mm -hmm. right? Okay, but the thing is, is, is I think we, we assume that just because there's a causal story to be told that undermines the normative story, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and that's one of the things I'm trying to diffuse in the book. Yeah. yeah. 
And from there, you, you kind of get into um, the idea of mental freedom itself. Yeah. You know, what, what does that actually uh, mean? And you actually tie it to certain responsibilities. You tie right. it to certain conclusions or at least commitments right. uh, in there. So you have this threefold idea of, of freedom and responsibility. Yeah. Maybe get a little bit into that. Sure. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I argue that there are three conditions for, for legitimate bona fide human freedom. Okay. Um, and so keep in mind, for the most part, whether we like it or not, we mostly kind of sleepwalk through our lives, mm -hmm. right? We just, we do what they tell us. We do what they say, right? Yeah. Uh, and I hope we do because otherwise, you know, once again, I don't want to deal with you at a four-way stop right. unless, <laughs> unless you're a pretty good conformer, okay? <laughs> yeah. um, and so for the most part, we do what we're told, mm -hmm. right? Okay, but at some point, it seems that what freedom demands is that we do more than that. Yeah. Okay. We take responsibility. We don't just do what we're told, but we take responsibility for what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. And I think there's three conditions for that. Um, the first thing is, is I have to be responsible to the world I've inherited. So it's my responsibility to that, that, uh, set of participations that I've inherited. Okay. Mm -hmm. So at some point I should be able to tell you using the marriage example. Mm -hmm. Okay. And let's say, let's, you know, a marriage example for a Roman Catholic. Okay. At some point, I should be able to tell you, like, what are the goods that's, that are promised by marriage, mm -hmm. right? What are the practices that, are that, that marriage commits me to? Like, I should become educated so that I can make explicit, right, the participations that I have. Yeah. Okay. And I think if one never rises to that level, one has probably never risen to the level of, of freedom. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So that's one condition. Um, so I have to not just be conforming, and I also have to not be just making it up, yeah. right? I have to be, I have to know what I'm doing, right? What is it that I've been told and what are these things, right? Mm -hmm. Can I explain them? Okay. But then at some point, I think I have to not just be responsible to the world I've inherited, but I have to hold that world responsible to reality. Yeah. Okay. Being in a cult is not being free. <laughs> okay. And if I never ask critical questions about the world that I've been thrown into, then I'm living by accident. Mm -hmm. Like if this is a good, good thing I'm doing, I'm just lucky. If it's a bad thing I'm doing, I'm just unlucky. Right. And a free being doesn't live by luck alone. Mm -hmm. Right. A free being like lives by reasons. So at some point I'm going to have to ask critical questions about the world that I've inherited. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then finally think of it this way is I, I could know using the marriage example, I could know very well what, what the teachings about marriage are and I can know the goods of it. Right? And I could, I could explain all that. I could be convinced that that in fact is the truth of the matter. Mm -hmm. Okay. But yet that might not be what motivates me. Yeah. Right. Like maybe deep down inside I'm motivated by lust or greed or, you know, social status or something like that. Okay. And so then if things worked out, I'm still just lucky then. Yeah. Right. I'm not living by my reasons mm -hmm. anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask myself kind of some dark questions about like, what's my own real inner motive for doing mm -hmm, this? Mm -hmm. Am I actually motivated because this is good and true and these are the right things? Or do I have something else going on behind the scenes? Yeah. Right. And that's sort of like where I, I have like a constructive uh, piece with Nietzsche in the book. Yeah. Like he's right to ask us those dark questions when Nietzsche says the knower is least well known to himself. Yes. Right. Yeah. I, so I better get to the bottom of myself if I'm actually going to be a free being, yes. right? what really does motivate me? Which often associates with uh, certain anxiety, 
Yes. Right. Because yes. In, in, a, in a way, because knowing the self is so darn difficult and it takes time to mine through that, that there might be some darkness in there. And yeah. you're probably a little bit afraid of what that is. Yeah. Or it might be something that you're so unaware of what's going on in your own life, in your own mind or, you know, if you will, your motivations, you don't know sometimes, right? That all of a sudden you're surprised by, oh, yes. I'm that kind of a person. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> and so and, and there's, there's going to be, with all three levels of freedom, there's going to be some kind of anxiety associated mm -hmm. with it, right? Especially once you get to that second level, like, well, is this true anyway? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it could be that I was thrown into the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. but get, yeah. That, that is going to cause, it should cause you some anxiousness. Yes. That, that shows that you're taking your, because unless I'm willing to let reality correct me and correct the world I participate in, right? Yep. Then I'm living a sham. And I think what it is to be free is to refuse to live a sham life, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there will be anxiousness when I ask, is the world I've inherited even true, right? And then even deeper anxiousness, yeah, but what if, even if it's true, what if I'm just lousy, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and that's not really what motivates I'm motivated by this because fill in the blank. And there's all sorts of fills in the blank, right? Yeah. And, and this, once again, brings us back to community questions, mm -hmm. right? Because... Who is going to help me come to questions about my own authenticity? Mm -hmm. It seems like, you know, the best person to do that for me is my wife. Yeah. Right. You know, the example I use in the book is like, you know, it, she might tell me, we know you opposed, you know, Smitty's promotion simply because you're jealous of his work, not because of the reasons you gave. Right. I mean, it's because I have trusted friends. I have trusted confidants. Right. Guys like Jared here. Right. Who will tell me. Uh, I think you're lying to yourself, yes. right? Yes. So once again, that project of that third level of freedom, that authenticity can only really be completed among trusted friends who are yes. going to be willing to correct you. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. And I think I've mentioned and this. And it's never yeah. done then. Yes. Yeah. And I think I've mentioned this in a, a previous episode too. It always reminds me of Bruce Lee when he talked about he knows himself more after fighting someone else. Yeah. Because he realizes his actions and his presuppositions that it's less about the enemy in front of him and more about his inner mining. But he needs the other person. Yes. You know, to, to work with, to fight with. Aristotle's um, a man alone is a beast or a god. Yes, exactly. And speaking of Aristotle, you also mentioned um, his idea of ignorance. Yeah. Right? That's kind of like the worst slavishness that mankind can fall yeah. into, um, which requires that, you know, mining out of yeah. whatever it is that, that motivates us. Yeah. And, and I, I, uh, my own read, and, you know, I could be correct on this, but my own read on much of, uh, Greek philosophy you find in Plato and Aristotle is indeed taking up the challenge of the tragic poets, mm. right? And using the example of Aeschylus with Oedipus yes. the king yes. is what was Oedipus's real problem, right? Oedipus's real problem was he didn't know himself, mm -hmm. right? And he, and he should have known better. He knew the prophecy against him. Some pretty obvious coincidences are going on here. We won't go into the details, right? Okay. <laughs> he should have known better and he did know better. He just wasn't willing to look inside as to what his real motives were. Yes. And that's what brings him to fate. Like, yes. so fate, our un, like the, the undermining of our freedom mm -hmm. has much to do with our unwillingness to ask critical questions of ourselves mm -hmm. in our world, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not surprising that Aeschylus has the word on, you know, like the, the re revelation of, of, of Oedipus's sins come from the Oracle of Delphi, right? Where one was told to know thyself, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what was this, this problem? He refused to know himself, yes. right? And I, and I read much of what goes on in 
the third book at Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics mm. as a demand that we know ourselves, that we do not allow ourselves to be fallen, fallen to the ignorance of an, of an Oedipus. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and what happens to Oedipus, right? Ultimately, he becomes blind. He becomes fulfills blind. what he is. Fulfills right? what he is. And it's a self-inflicted wound. Self-inflicted. Because he didn't do exactly. the, the yeah. inner work, right? Yeah, the inner work. Um, so and, now, and, and so here then, and I do appeal to people like Nietzsche and Freud and mm-hmm. Jung, because I do think that inner work, there is a role for that. Yeah. Absolutely. It's the whole, the self-mining is what the best philosophers get into, right? right. How do I live my life? Right. In order to do that, you got to know what life is. you got to know what you are. <laughs> and what are my pitfalls? Yes, yes. Um, so now with the last couple of minutes, and of course this could be a whole episode, yeah. um, I love your concept of what mankind is as an offloading being. Like yeah. they, we take what's in here and offload it into the world. And you mentioned it earlier, we work with our hands, we create yeah. things, we build things. And that's a reflection often of the cultural mind or what you call the geist, right? This, yeah. this larger thing that we're all participating in. And now with this introduction of new technology, such as, as AI, you really go deep into is this thing an apocalyptic yeah. <laughs> reality? Yeah. Two chapters in there, basically. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, and yeah. and the, kind of the answer is yes in a certain way, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be dystopian. And it could be a mix of utopian, dystopian. Maybe kind of get in on a little bit of that there. Yeah, so um, one of the, one of the um, very common notions in contemporary cognitive science that I piggyback on in mm-hmm. this book is, this, is the extended mind hypothesis. Mm-hmm which was originally crafted by David Chalmers and Andy Clark, okay? And Clark has really made it his thing, okay? And the extended mind hypothesis makes the point that um, it doesn't really seem to matter whether I have writing outside of me that I'm using to recall or there's writing in my nervous system I'm using Mm -hmm. to recall. Either way, it's a very similar relationship, okay? So then that becomes part of a case to say that the way human cognition works is to extend itself technologically into its environment. Mm-hmm. Like even language is a kind of technological extension yes. uh, of our cognition and environment. Because I can talk to you, I can say, hey, Jared, remind me that we start at 10, not 11, yes. <laughs> right? Um, and so what is that? That's my way of taking some of the, the burden mm-hmm. of cognition and putting on it on my environment, which includes other people, okay? And so, on this view, and I think it's right, there was no pre-technological human cognition. Like mm. this is what, if we, if we associate cognition with language, there was no pre-technological human cognition, right? Mm-hmm. It's always been our taking our, the burden and spreading it out into an environment that we make for ourselves, mm-hmm. okay? And so that we end up with things like cell phones, mm-hmm. right? Seems to be it was baked in the cake from the beginning, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that we were on a one-way trip to this okay and and i think so probably if this is my kind of read on history now okay is every generation or maybe every epic has a sense of that of an end of the world because what what's going to happen is our ways of 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 rigging our environment for ourselves are going to become outmoded Mm -hmm. okay so we're going to have a sense that we're coming to an end Mm -hmm. right and we are right but note that, that that coming to an end has always had another beginning associated with mm-hmm. it, right? But the problem is on this side of that, we can't know what that other beginning looks like. Mm-hmm. So it does cause us anxiety, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it's inevitable, like any apocalypse, yes. right? Right. Um, and I can be pretty moody and gloomy about it. And I, there's some moody and gloomy sure. moments in that book. Um, but also I think it's not something I can look forward to 
But it's not something I can really rue either because I don't claim to understand it because it's going to be the next, the next life world. Yes. Right? It's also not something that you can stop. Right. right? It's, some, it's, a, it's a consistent, ongoing thing. But the way I kind of envisioned it was sort of like a, an explorer going on a journey. And it's the first time, let's say, Lewis and Clark are going over this huge mountain. They have no idea no what's idea. on the other side of that thing. Yeah. And who knows what kind of technology that what's ever on the other side of that thing yeah. has that's going to either enhance or hurt right. <laughs> their life. And right. even how that thing participates with the Lewis and Clark right. band of brothers going over there, right? It could annihilate them or it could say, hey, check out this new technology. Exactly. Okay, now we've got this new thing. Let's go over this river that much easier. Yeah. Right? And we can't know <clears throat> that on this yes. side. Yes. Now, one thing that, that I, I do press hard in the book is the worry, though, is this technological revolution does seem to be having effects on our ability to have emotional attachment. Mm -hmm. It does seem to be having effects on our having real world tactile skills, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And, th and that I do worry about because those are non-optional human evolutionary yes. uh, um, structures, right? Okay, evolutionary condition structures. And so I'm, I'm not, once again, I'm not a pessimist, I'm an optimist either about mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. But I do think we have to watch very carefully that will the pre-rational conditions of our mindedness be undermined by this because of that loss of attachment, because of those loss of, of physical skills, because of those losses of, you know, being in touch with an empirical world, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's my worry. Yes. You've got this great line in there from Heidegger that, yeah. that he does say, we are technology creating beings, therefore yeah. we should continue going forward. Yeah. However, we have no choice, it's a destiny. Yes. However, yeah. it's to be so careful about what it destroys about the rest of our beingness. Yes. which is those things like affectivity, those exactly. things like exactly. cultural connections, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then one thing too that I, you, you get into uh, a little bit is this idea of um, AI being able to be rational itself. And granted, I think that could be an entire episode. Yeah, sure. You we know, can do that too. All by yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. we probably should actually. Um, so if you want to give kind of like a Reader's yeah. Digest version uh, of that, yeah. because that to me is the question that needs to yeah. be asked with this new technology. Yeah. And for the purpose of this book, I don't take a stand on whether or not AI can be rational. Mm -hmm. right? So I actually say, I'm not gonna talk about artificial intelligence. Right. I'm gonna talk about artificial mind, artificial geist is the German mm -hmm. I use in the book. Um, and I make a case is whatever AI is doing, it's not doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, because our mindedness is grounded in emotional attachment, physical skills, right? Um, and, you know, and being in touch with a, a cultural world, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? And our mindedness presupposes this sort of willingness to sort of like look at dark questions about ourselves and have anxiety, okay? Yeah. So um, the, the AI chapter in the book is called the anxiety of not being a machine, mm -hmm. okay? And I, I make the case is the fact that we find the question of whether we're machines as ridden with angst for us mm -hmm. is the evidence that we need to see that we're not machines. Okay, yes. now that doesn't mean AI won't become smarter than we are. Okay, I'm not, right. I'm, not, I'm not taking a stance on that one way or another, okay? But what I'm saying is, is whatever it is, it's not us because it's not subject to this kind of anxiety that we have about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. not subject to the same conditions of attachment and participation that we are mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. mindedness. 
Yeah, you get into sort of syntax versus semantics right. and, and things like that. And right. you have this really great kind of threefold thing again of, of you know, structure running yes, yes, that, that yeah. pragmatic versus the, the giving a damn and then the authenticity. Yes. I thought that was the perfect way of like, this is why it's different. And what right. we're participating when we talk about mind, it will never participate in, at least at, at, current, at its current state, it's right? Current state. If anything, it'll be artificial. Right. And that's the scary part. That's Because yeah. <laughs> we want an authentic, yeah. authentic mind, yeah. right? And I've, I've given a lecture based on that chapter for the Thomistic Institute several times, yeah. right? And what, the way I title that lecture is I say, the problem with artificial intelligence isn't what you think, mm -hmm. uh, think underlined, okay? Because mm -hmm. and, and, that's the track most people say, is like humans have this special abstractive intelligence that a machine will never have, et cetera, et cetera. I take no stance on that. Okay, in, in the book at least, right? Okay, let's just say, suppose it can, mm -hmm. right? It's still not what we do, because what we do is wrapped up in this Lebensvelt, this lived world, this world of attachment and anxiety. Uh, and that's what distinguishes us. And I think this is important though, because I think especially as philosophers, we tend to like say, okay, what, what human distinctiveness is like sort of rational, abstractive contemplation, mm -hmm. right? But that has very little to do with the lives of most humans who have ever lived, mm -hmm. right? Okay, that has very little to do with, really, even as a professional philosopher, 90% of my day, mm -hmm. right? What really matters to the most human beings that have ever lived is the people they love, yes. the things that cause them anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I think there is a little bit of a, like a pushback of the, of the tradition that I stand in here, mm -hmm. right? Is to say, have we really, really hit what is most valuable in our lives, yeah. right? And it, do you see what I mean, right? Yes. Uh, have, yeah. we, have we kind of missed what the human thing is because we've only looked in this one direction for it? Yeah, that's fantastic, man. This has been such a great conversation. And Thank you. for all of our listeners and viewers, I highly recommend picking up this book, especially if you have any interests in the philosophy of mind or AI or you know just dense, good deep philosophy. Uh, it's a great book to pick up. Sure. So thanks again for coming you on bet. the show, it's man. Been an honor, this man. has been I awesome, it. and yeah. uh, really hope you guys enjoyed. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed the Benedictine Dialogues, a production of Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. To catch all the latest and support our growing platform, visit media.benedictine.edu. And be sure to recommend this show to your friends and family. Help us to transform culture in America, one conversation at a time.